Uh, we are looking at the life of Paul. You can, uh, uh, the d- difficulty with this particular study is what we're doing is we're picking certain scriptures that uh, detail events in his life and uh, rather than bounce around from place to place, we're, we're putting them up for you to read and then you can jot them down. You're certainly welcome to turn there, but uh, I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know, I'm, if you've noticed, I don't ever ask you to turn anywhere in your Bible. Have you ever noticed that? I've, I, I never say, hey, let's turn over here. And, and some people don't like that. Uh, I tell you why, uh, because um, I, we just don't have time for that. Uh, and so, we, you know, it takes a long time to turn in your Bible to some place and get everybody on the same page. And uh, I would rather just give you the reference and have you be a good Berean and go out and check and make sure that uh, what I said was really biblical, that that verse. And, and so usually we just stay in one, you know, if we're in Jeremiah, we're in Jeremiah. And we'll make reference some other stuff, but we're really locked in there. And so that works. But this kind of study, a little bit different because we're not in a section of scripture. We're, we're taking cross sections of Paul's life and finding different areas of scripture. And so I'm just going to read them to you. They'll be up on the screen. You can jot them down. Um, but uh, tonight we're going to look at Paul the Punisher. Saul, who we know better by his Roman name, Paul, is first introduced to us as party to a stoning. Uh, not the best way to be introduced. Hey, weren't you that guy that was at the stoning the other day? But uh, that's how he comes to us in Scripture. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned to death while Saul watched the clothes of those who stoned him. It launched Saul on his career as the punisher of the young church. And so let me read a few of the pertinent verses that depict Saul as the punisher of the church. Uh, Acts 22.20 says, When the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then in Acts chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Back in Acts 22, verses 4 and 5, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Acts 22, 19. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. Acts 26, 10, and 11. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Uh, Galatians 1.13, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And so Paul, uh, the word that jumps out at you, he punished the church for being the church. In the first century, since we meet Paul at a stoning, I, I did a little research on stoning. In the first century, a legal stoning could only be inflicted by the verdict of a regularly constituted court of 23 qualified members. There must be trustworthy and convincing testimony by at least two qualified eyewitnesses to the crime. 
The culprit must be a person of legal age and of sound mind, and the crime must be proved to have been committed of the culprit's free will and without the aid of others. That's the ideal setup. The two valid witnesses and the sentenced criminal would then go to the edge of a two-story building. From there, the two witnesses would push the criminal off of the roof. Then from the two-story height, well, first of all, from the, two, the two-story height was estimated to affect a quick and painless death, but not so high that the body would become too dismembered. Uh, so it was kind of a, it was a kind, uh, two-story is the kind height to throw somebody off. After the criminal had fallen, the two witnesses dropped a boulder onto the criminal. It required both of them to lift it together. If the criminal did not die from the fall or from the crushing of the boulder, then any people in the surrounding area quickly caused him to die by stoning him with whatever rocks they could find. Now, the whole thing sounds inhumane, but it was a humane. It's more than just you and I all often think that they just went crazy and a mob started grabbing stones and they just started pelting your body. And that happened. Uh, but the legal way to stone by the time the rabbis had gotten through with it in the first century was to throw you off a two-story building. Hopefully you died. If you didn't die, they dropped a boulder on you. The witnesses did. And if you still didn't die, then f- some of the people around you would stone you until you were dead. Normally, then, it was the witnesses who carried out the biggest part of the sentence. Since some effort was involved, they would take off any outer garments to make their work easier. And so they, you know, they wore those long flowing robes, the outer garments <coughs> and, or coats, uh, the tunic in those days. And so in order to pick up a boulder and not trip over your tunic and fall off the roof yourself, uh, you would take your garment off. So it would seem that the stoning of Stephen was not entirely legal, but neither was it a mob action. The fact that Saul cast no stones doesn't mean he didn't consent to it. He absolutely did. By being the person who held on to the clothing or watched the clothing of those doing the stoning, it showed he was a person to be held in some regard. When he's introduced to us at Stephen's stoning, he's probably 30 35 years old, having drawn the attention of prominent Jewish men as someone who could be given important responsibilities. What about the years in between his education in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel and the stoning of Stephen? Uh, He was probably done with his education in Jerusalem at about age 18. He's maybe 30, 35 years old here. We have no idea what went on in Paul's life during those years. We could speculate. In all uh, probability, he became a rabbi and lived and taught in a local synagogue, possibly even in his own hometown of Tarshish. No doubt he continued to study and to learn and distinguished himself, beginning to draw attention to himself. Uh, Remember, he was a prized pupil of Gamaliel. Uh, He said some amazing things about himself in our last study, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, a a convicted Pharisee. Uh, You know, he was at, at the top of Judaism. Now, the stoning of Stephen, you know, was the match that ignited a fire, and it gave Saul the green light to eliminate the followers of Jesus Christ. And as we read in those scriptures at the beginning, he went about this task with cold, calculated precision. Did he hate Christians? Well, I don't know. I think rather he loved Judaism. He understood the message of Stephen and the followers of what was called the way 
to essentially undermine centuries of Jewish history and prophecy. Of course, he was wrong, and he would come to put Judaism into perspective for all of us. We looked at that in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul believed that this way, these followers of Jesus were undermining the law and undermining Judaism. He would see how that Judaism uh, really pointed towards the coming of Jesus Christ later after his conversion. In the meantime, he set out to defend that which he loved the most. I'm not giving an excuse for anything Saul did, but even he would later say without insinuating he was any less responsible that he had done it out of ignorance. And so he had certainly the right motives. Uh, You know, he just went about doing things the wrong way. Just what exactly did Saul do? Well, as I said, he's first introduced to us as the man who watched the clothes of those who stoned Stephen. That's our first glimpse at this man. Charles Spurgeon had an amazing insight as to the symbolism of that scene. With the foresight of knowing that Saul would soon be converted and become Christ's minister, he likened the clothing at Saul's feet to the mantle of Elijah falling to Elisha. You remember the story as Elijah was being taken to heaven in the famous chariot of fire, his mantle or his outer garment, the garment he wore that identified him as the prophet, fell to Elisha's feet, and it signified that Elisha would take up that garment and be his successor, that he would be the next prophet of Israel. Now, of course, Saul would not take up any such mantle immediately, but I think we see that God was at work preparing him. Um, The Lord had things in mind for Paul. He had good works that he wanted him to perform, and he would use the stoning of Stephen and many other events in his life to bring him to a point of conversion and service. Um, And so that mantle, as it were, was falling in in kind of a different way. Interesting symbolism. I I was thinking about this in in light of uh, Calvary Chapel, as a matter of fact, because I I don't know how many of you lose sleep over this or think about this, but right now uh, a lot of people are concerned about who is going to take the place of Pastor Chuck Smith as the head, uh, the de facto head of the Calvary Chapels. And, uh, you know, most of you know the history of Calvary Chapel, that it started many, many years ago, decades ago, with Chuck Smith going to Costa Mesa, and then out of that fellowship, uh, thousands, literally, of fellowships have sprung up across the world, uh, maybe 2,000 fellowships worldwide, I think, uh, right now. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, Chuck, uh, he's in his mid-80s, and then he had a a big health problem going on earlier this year. He developed lung cancer, and that's kind of an ongoing thing. And so there's all this talk, what's going to happen, and who's going to take over? And, you know, people are, seem to be really worried about this. You know, who, how's that mantle going to pass? And the truth is, no one really knows. There is no plan, and, and any plan that, that people make would be a, a people plan. It would be man's plan, because, you know, Chuck Smith never had a plan. Chuck Smith didn't go to Costa Mesa and say, how can I build 2,000 churches around the world and have the Calvary Chapel system that's not a denomination but an affiliation? He had no idea that anything was going to happen other than he was going to Costa Mesa and he'd be able to surf again, uh, you know, more often because he was in Corona. And so, uh, you know, he he never had a plan and, and he still doesn't have a plan. Uh, and, and though he is the recognized 
uh, head of the Calvary chapels, um, that's a position that God has raised him up to, and it's not a, it's not a pos- position that someone can walk into or assume because it was given by God. And so I don't know what's going to happen to Calvary Chapel as an affiliation, uh, but, and I say this in the nicest way possible, I don't really care as long as the guys involved just follow the Lord. Uh, you know, whether we will continue as an affiliation or whether some new affiliation will spring up or whether, you know, to me, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, we will get together, we'll talk, we'll pray, Calvaries will spring up, you know, things like that. So uh, it's interesting, you know, uh, they, you know, in the first century they might have thought, What's, who's going to take the place of Stephen, you know, Stephen, this great servant, this wonderful deacon and all, and uh, they had no idea, not that Paul would take his place, but that out from the blood of that first martyr, the church's greatest missionary would be born. Uh, and so we need to leave all of that with God, just do what's on our plate, what's ahead of us, uh, and the Lord will take care of things like that. Just follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, concerning Saul as a persecutor, one author had this to say, and I quote, the part which he played at this time in the horrid work of persecution has, I fear, always been underrated. It's only when we collect separate passages in which allusion is made to this sad period. It is only when we weigh the terrible significance of the expressions used that we feel the load of remorse which must have lain upon him. He made havoc of literally was he was ravaging the church. No stronger metaphor could well have been used. It occurs nowhere else in the New Testament, but in the Septuagint and in classical Greek, it is applied to wild boars uprooting a vineyard. And so he was, um, you know, in today's vernacular, it'd be like a tractor going through and demolishing uh, a, an orchard. I don't think it's going too far to say that Saul was the driving force behind the persecution of the church. Once he was converted, Acts 9.31 tells us, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Also, many of the verses we read in Acts and elsewhere specifically say Saul persecuted the believers. They use personal pronouns like I did this and he did this. This was his mission. Once he was taken out of the picture, once he got saved, the persecution abruptly halted, at least for a time. And so Paul was uniquely, directly responsible as a one-man wrecking crew Uh, for the church. And it was the stoning of Stephen that gave him the green light that lit that match for him to go and say, hey, this is a good idea to kill these followers of Jesus Christ, and I will do it. You found your man. And um, they let him go. Now, it seems Saul would go into the synagogues and there identify those who were believers. During the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BC, that's when Jews began gathering to pray and study the scripture in what they called synagogues. A quorum of 10 men was necessary to form one. Numerous synagogues were set up in Jerusalem by the 1st century, including one for freed men or ex-slaves. There were no less than 480 synagogues in Jerusalem during Saul's time. And so he would go from synagogue to synagogue when they would meet 
Uh, oftentimes, it, it seems that Stephen may have given part of his address, uh, or he may have been talking in the synagogue when they drug him out, and then he gave his defense before the Sanhedrin. But uh, the, just as Paul would later go on his missionary journeys to a synagogue and begin to talk to Jews about Jesus, the early Christians were still, go- they were Jews who were converted to Christ, they would attend synagogue. And they would there, uh, when they had the opportunity to share or teach, they would talk about Jesus Christ. And so Paul would go, Saul would go, and he would hang out at the synagogues, and they would identify for him who the Christians were, and he would persecute them. Punishment administered by the synagogue were floggings and imprisonments, and even, we read, uh, killings or death, or we would say murder, but they would say execution. Saul was also determined to compel the followers of Jesus to blaspheme, which literally means to call Jesus accursed. Uh, And so he wasn't content with anything less than a total reversal of their uh, commitment to Christ and with uh, flogging them or imprisoning them or murdering them. In Acts 26.10, the phrase put to death, referring to certain believers, is literally sentenced to death. Now, this is interesting because the Jews had no power to carry out the death penalty. You remember when uh, they wanted to murder Jesus. Uh, They found him guilty in several illegal trials. They had to take him to Pontius Pilate because only the Romans could uh, execute someone. And yet, Paul, we read in the scripture that many of the Jews, uh, the Christians, were being sentenced to death. It's been suggested that Pontius Pilate was content to look the other way as a political favor to the Sanhedrin, and that uh, for a time the ruling body of the Jews had either themselves or they had given Paul the authority to sentence people to death in these, uh, you know, proceedings, and that Rome was looking the other way. At least one biographer suggests that some of the killings may have been carried out by Jewish zealots working with Saul called the Sicarii. Uh, The name means dagger men. Uh, They were the bad dudes of their day. Under their cloaks, they concealed Sikai or small daggers from which they received their name. What they would do, they would go to large assemblies uh, where Jews would assemble on the Temple Mount in pilgrimages, for example, and they would stab the enemy Uh, Romans usually or Roman sympathizers or Herodians, wealthy Jews who uh, were benefiting from Roman rule, and and then they would quickly blend into the crowd. And so you'd be, you know, in a crowded place, uh, farmer's market type situation, and all of a sudden somebody would brush up against you and they would have their dagger hidden in their tunic and they would just gut you and then they would walk off in the crowd. And so they were uh, vicious, brutal assassins. And so there's some (coughs) thought by some individuals that uh, in addition to the executions that were being carried out by the synagogues, stonings and imprisonments and those kinds of things, that Paul was also uh, using the Sicarii, identifying Christians and murdering them. Now, we can't say in every case, but we can say in most cases that as these believers were flogged or imprisoned or murdered or executed, they replicated the final moments of Stephen when he died. I don't think it's going too far to say that. What were those moments like? Well, you, you remember Acts seven fifty five, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they stoned Stephen, verse 59, as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That was the the death of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen. So it was not a, wasn't the legal stoning that they were supposed to, they, apparently they didn't push him off of a building and drop a boulder on him. It was more of a dragging him out and everybody picking up stones. Uh, but while they were stoning Stephen, he was seeing the Lord. He had a vision of the Lord, the heavens opened for him, and he prayed for those who stoned him. And it's not going so far, I don't think, to say that many of these that died in the first century would also have had that same uh, kind of a testimony. You read it in Fox's Book of Martyrs, story after story after story of uh, individuals who were boiled to death or burned to death who nevertheless uh, died triumphantly uh, with Christ on their lips. And so think of how many triumphant deaths Saul witnessed as he went about persecuting the church. It must have driven him nearly insane when you think about it. Uh, I mean, it was, it was when Nebuchadnezzar, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, go ahead and kill us, we don't care. Nebuchadnezzar went crazy and heated the fire up seven times more than it had ever been heated up and burned up his own men as they were throwing those three Hebrew uh, men into the fire. And so imagine Saul trying to destroy the church, trying to wipe out the church, trying to get people to blaspheme, and then every time, you know, killing these individuals, and they had this testimony. They seemed only to harden him, though, making him more resolved to kill others, but we know that Jesus was able to use each of them to reveal to Saul the power of a saved life. I mean, you have to look at that and think at some level that you couldn't die like that. Uh, and you, you'd have to know if you were Paul that there's something miraculous about that death. When Saul did meet Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus to kill more Christians, the Lord said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus understands what happens to you as happening to him. In another passage, he will tell those who survived the tribulation that when they did or did not do something to the least of his followers, they did or did not do it unto him. I don't want to confuse trials with persecutions. They're very different. Generally speaking, however, whenever something happens in my life that I would put in the category of being bad, you know, we do that. We have categories of things in our life. Some things are good. Some things are bad. When anything happens that's bad, my first thought, sadly, is almost always, why is this happening to me? Uh, It's not always necessarily a complaint. Maybe, you know, you're thinking, does it have, you know, what value does it have? But you, you, you think, why is this happening to me? And though it's a thought, it's really a question at the same time. I'm asking the Lord. I'm really saying, Lord, why is this happening to me? Why are you allowing this? Why did you ordain this? What, what's the deal? And there's an implied distance in that thought, in that question. I'm implying that God is either causing or permitting something to happen to me while he watches from a safe and uninvolved distance. I mean, if I say to him, Lord, why are you letting this happen to me or why are you causing this happen to me? Uh, I don't have any idea really that the Lord and I are going through it together. It's something that he's done. 
something that he's allowed. I'm pretty sure it'll all work together for good in the end because I've read Romans 8, but initially and along the way, I wonder where is God when it hurts? Why does he seem so distant? So what if I took Jesus' word seriously and believe that, for example, when I am being persecuted, it really is the Lord that is being persecuted? Now, I'm not trying to get all mystical, but, but when he, Saul murdered Christians, he persecuted Christians, he imprisoned Christians, he tortured Christians, and when the Lord meets him on the road to Damascus, he said, Paul, each time you were persecuting me, it was as if you were doing that to me. I was there. It, not just that I'm upset with it or these people are my people. Or, you know, he said, you did it to me. And at the end of the tribulation, he said, when you gave that cold cup of water or visited that individual in prison, you were visiting me. And so the Lord identifies with us on a very personal level. And so if I thought I'm being persecuted, but it's really Christ who's being persecuted, well, that would revolutionize my whole way of thinking. Then I might really be empowered to look upon my persecutors the way Stephen did, with compassion, asking the Lord to forgive them. I wouldn't wonder at all why I was being treated badly. In fact, I would expect to be treated badly because Jesus said, didn't he, that they hated him and they would hate me and what they did to him, they would do to me. And so uh, it shouldn't seem strange at all to me that I would be being persecuted for righteousness sake. In fact, it ought to seem strange that I'm not being persecuted. Now, I'm not wanting to be persecuted. I'm not looking for persecution. I don't ask for trials, that, you know, none of that. But the truth is, if I really understand following Jesus Christ, uh, I should expect to be persecuted at any moment and all the time and I should understand that it's really Jesus who's being persecuted. And when I have that attitude, I'm never going to ask why or feel distant from the Lord. In fact, I'm going to feel like the Lord is right there with me. And so there's kind of a reversal of thinking. It's that instead of thinking, Lord, why are you allowing this? It's like, well, of course this is what's going to happen. And Lord, you're right here with me in it. They're really doing it to you. And because of that, I'm bringing glory to you. And so I, I, I can receive that grace that you have for someone in this situation. When Stephen was stoned, they were really stoning the Lord, and he understood that, and it set the tone for his boldness in life and for his triumph at death. He understood that, and he was understanding that what they were doing. Bold living and triumphant dying can be ours too if we understand and embrace that Jesus loves us so much he is identified with us in our persecutions. We always, talking, we always talk about being identified with Christ. Romans, Paul made a big deal about that. We're identified with him in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And theologically, we have a handle on that. But when it comes to practical living, we, we distance ourselves from the Lord. We always feel like our trouble brings a distance between us and him. And he has told us just the opposite. He said, your trouble often proves how much I love you and how much you love me because what they are doing to you, they're really doing to me. They may not know it. Saul didn't know it. He didn't know he was persecuting Jesus Christ. He found out on the road to Damascus and it blew his mind. But he was, nevertheless. Every, every imprisonment, every flogging, every person he was torturing, every person he murdered, 
it was a, 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 he was doing it to Christ as far as Jesus said. And when we believe that, it will revolutionize our approach to trouble. If I or you are saying or asking why all the time, and we do, I admit that I do, but when I am asking why, I imply that the Lord is distant from me, that he has left me temporarily to fend for myself or that I will find him somehow or discover something. And uh, sure, I'll learn something. He has lessons for me. But Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And what, in a, in a very profound sense, without taking it too far, but in a very profound sense, what happens to you happens to Jesus Christ. And... Um, I think if we understood that more, we'd be more victorious in our trials, more triumphant, seeing the Lord. And, you know, whether we literally or not, we, we'll see that the Lord is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in triumph, and we will walk with him there. Amen.